Your story is waiting for you today. Your story has something new to say. But your story will only come out to play when you're alone. Alone. Alone in a room with invisible people. Hello and happy Halloween to all of you listening. Just want to remind you that this is the Halloween special listeners edition. That means that the listeners are the creators of the content that you are going to hear tonight. This is our third and final Halloween installment. You'll get one today and one on Halloween itself. It will air on the same time, 5 a.m. on the 31st. So if you are one of our writers who were accepted, enjoy your story. I hope we do you justice. And if you're just tuning in to listen to all of the spooky, sad, funny, silly stories, I hope that you enjoy yourself. But before we get into the first story, I wanted to share with you guys uh, a little message from Mark. Hi, this is Mark Herman. I did the voice work for the intro for Alone in a Room with Invisible People along with the Halloween variant. And I've also had the great pleasure of narrating a number of stories for all three years of the Halloween special. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has listened to the podcast and to Holly and Rebecca for giving me the opportunity to uh, join in. It's been a lot of fun and I've really enjoyed reading your stories over the years. Um, I hope that fans of the podcast have had a good time and have learned. Um, nothing from me, just from <laughs> listening to the podcast. Uh, I know that I have and uh, I've greatly enjoyed being a part of it every year. So thank you and um, happy Halloween. Sibling Rivalry by Lauren M. Catherine. I stood back from my kitchen table admiring the lit jack-o'-lanterns and the silk maple leaves in reds and yellows strewn with plastic spiders that completed the Halloween theme. The food was perfect. Mulled wine, fragrant cinnamon, cloves, and orange, shrimp cocktail, mom's favorite, pigs in blankets for dad, guacamole with chips for me, crab dip in case Claude, my older brother, showed. Yep, all set. I couldn't wait to see Mom and Dad. Fingers crossed she'd convinced him to come. I glanced at the clock, 11.20pm. I dashed down the hall to my bedroom. Just as I finished changing, light swept across the room as a car pulled into my driveway. The door slammed, footsteps on the porch, the kitchen door opening and closing. Coming! I hurried back into the kitchen. You're here! Claude's gray suit looked rumpled his red tie limp. He shook his head, gusting out a sigh as he stared at the table. I can't believe this, Kaylee. I know! I made everyone's favorite. He held up a hand. Mom isn't coming. He paused. I tell you that every year. And you never stay long enough to see her, I snapped. She's coming. No, she isn't. She said she would. No reason to doubt her. He stared at me. I broke the silence. Said she'd bring Dad. Claude groaned. 
I didn't realize. Now you're obsessing. They come every year. Well, uh, Mom does. And she promised. Inwardly, I cringed. I sounded like the impotent kid sister whom he delighted in teasing. Eyes worried. He looked like he'd aged 20 years in the six since he took over the family business. Kaylee, they're dead. You know that, right? I didn't say anything. Halloween, six years ago tonight, teenagers egged their car on the way here. They crashed. His voice thickened with emotion and died. Yes, I whispered. He pulled me close. I curled into his embrace. I, I know. Tears welled in my eyes. Let's go. He loosened the hug, but kept one arm around me, steering me toward the door. We'll stop by Dr. Sam's clinic. I planted my feet. No! Kaylee, his voice hardened. Don't make me throw you over my shoulder. I squirmed. Stronger, he dragged me toward the door. A whoosh of cold air and a brilliant light flashed. I twisted in his iron grip. Mom! Even as a ghost, she was smiling. Hi, honey. Claude! Glad you could stop by this year. Her smile morphed into a frown. Claude, how many times have I told you to stop picking on your sister? I pushed Claude's arm off me. His mouth hung open. Just wait until your father gets here, Mom said. I did a little hop. Daddy, too! My brother, Ashen, thumped into a chair. Turning toward him, my back to Mom, as only a little sister can do, I stuck out my tongue and gave him my best I-told-you-so grin. And Imperfect Murder by Greg Ripper. At dusk, she emerges from the woods, dirty, disheveled, and drenched, and drenched in sweat. She tosses the shovel into the back seat. Out you go, she huffs at the passenger, who pays her no mind, which annoys her no end. Her hand motions out towards the woods. Come on now, he's that way. On its own terms, the cat stretches before stepping out of the car and onto the roadside shoulder where it perches itself like some macabre memorial. As she speeds away, she stares at its shrinking silhouette in her rear view. Back home, she leans the shovel against the kitchen wall, next a shower, which she desperately needs, and there's still the matter of the large crimson spot by his chair. It all happens so fast, but she can't help but take a moment to appreciate the tranquility after 47 long years. She sure isn't going to miss the constant calamity and bitter bickering. No other family, no friends to speak of, and now not even his ornery old cat to come looking for him. Her revelry in the soothing silence, however, proved short-lived. Ding dong, so much for peace and quiet. Damn trick-or-treaters. Maybe some peace tomorrow, after Halloween. I don't have any candy, she shouts at the door. Despite the declaration, another ding dong, and then another. She lurches to the door and flings it open, keen on giving these kids a piece of her mind and certainly not any candy. No one. She squints into the darkness. Across the street, she catches a faint glow emanating from the neighbor's porch. Is that an eye? Ice courses through her veins as she makes out its unmistakable profile, trembling 
She retreats to the kitchen and retrieves the shovel. Outside the kitchen window, she spots the contour of the cat, now perched on the back fence. It can't be. I left you miles away from here just an hour ago. She gasps as another ding-dong reverberates through the house. Floorboards creak and moan as she tiptoes through the darkness, back to the front door, shaking. She peers through the people, which reveals no one. She freezes against the door for what feels like an eternity, heart leaping out of her chest. Ding-dong! She yanks the door open, shovel held high, and screams, I should have buried you with... Except this time someone is here. And it isn't a trick-or-treater. From the back of the police car, she makes out the shape she had seen moments earlier on the neighbor's stoop. Just a silly Halloween cat decoration. See that light on their porch, the officer says. Doorbell cam. It recorded you dragging a body to your car last night. She squeezes her eyes shut in disbelief, head held low. The marbles of modern technology caught by a doorbell. It watches from high atop the roof. As the car pulls away, she glances back at the house for a final time. She shrieks when she sees it. The cat purrs. Chew Toy by Charles Hogue. Come on, boy. Michael Wilson goaded his bulldog Bark Vader, or BV for short, who was gnawing on something he shouldn't. Stop it, BV. Let's go out. BV turned his oversized head when he heard his second favorite word, out, and trotted, tongue flapping. There was Michael by the half-open sliding glass door, leading to his private yard. Yeah, big guy, let's play. Here and there, BV ran, while Michael tried to tire him out enough so that he'd sleep once inside and keep from chewing things further. Ever since BV was a puppy, he would get into trouble for gnawing on things. Like the time he ate two golf balls, and only passed one. That was a $3,500 meal by way of an operation at the vet. Michael didn't care about the money, though, because he loved BV more than anything, and would do whatever it took to protect him. Finally done playing, BV came inside and immediately stopped to chew on a shoe. No, yelled Michael, and BV acquiesced. Next, there was a knock at the front door. Small voices yelled, Trick or treat! Michael, not able to go out and buy candy, kept quiet. Unfortunately, not occupied with chewing, BV took off barking. With a loud thud, he slammed headlong into the door. The children on the other side screamed and ran away. BV barked incessantly. Michael tried hopelessly to quiet him down, knowing his neighbor Mrs. Goldblatt, or as Michael called her, Mrs. Oldsplatt, would eventually complain. It didn't take long. He could hear her yelling, Shut up! through the door. This riled BV further. With no other options, Michael whispered to BV his favorite word. Dinner! BV bounded to where it was waiting for him over by the sliding glass door. Outside, Mrs. Goldblatt called the superintendent. Hello, Mr. Johnson. This is Mrs. Goldblatt from Condo 1B. I am outside of Mr. Wilson's. His dog has been barking constantly and scaring the children. Momentarily, Mr. Johnson showed up and met Mrs. Goldblatt outside of Michael's condo. For five minutes, Mr. Johnson knocked on the door and yelled for Michael. I know you're in there, Wilson. I can smell your strange cooking, said Johnson. Michael stayed as quiet as possible while BV ate. Eventually, Mr. Johnson used his master key. On the premise, the smell could be a gas leak. 
I'm coming in, Mr. Wilson, Johnson warned. As soon as the door opened, a malodor attacked his nose violently. Hesitant, Johnson walked towards the back of the condo. He looked in each room until he came upon the sight of B.V. eating his dinner. He watched B.V. lap up the juices and tender sinews of Michael's inner right thigh. Other parts of Michael were also well chewed. He had been dead a week from a stroke. Mr. Johnson crouched low and vomited. In the yard stood the ghost of Michael, shaking his head and muttering, Oh, B.V., I'm sorry I couldn't keep you safe longer. Haunted Angel by Stephanie Cornelius I've always been the timid sort, the sort of woman who lets fear hold her back, even when it matters most. New neighbors moved in downstairs and proceeded to ignore me, at least most of the family did. I'll accept dear sweet Rosa, on the cusp of womanhood at 14, who would join me upstairs with her most recent book, Content in My Quiet Company. How she reminded me so of my dearest Sarah. Lately, Rosie's father called to mind memories of my late husband. The demonic glint in his eyes, wicked lies falling from his lips. I could almost smell the sulfurous brimstone beneath the rank odor of alcohol. Rosetta! He roared now. Rosetta! I thought I told you to pick up Brandon's toys! I just tripped over a dump truck and stepped on some Legos. Do you know how much Legos hurts? Well, I'll show you. Rosie was curled up in a corner of my attic room, reading, and she hadn't yet heard his yelling. If I hadn't been right by the stairs, I might have missed it myself. He ripped off his belt and I could see the madness in his eyes. He came storming up the stairs, throwing the door open with force. He advanced towards her, the devil on his face, spittle spewing from his lips with each word uttered. You think you can hide from me? The belt came up, about to descend on my poor Rosie. Without thought, and maybe just a bit of added confidence from the full moon on this Halloween night, I sprung up in front of him and pushed him with all my might towards the door, the way I should have done when my husband went after Sarah. I would carry that guilt for all eternity. His shocked screech as he teetered on the edge of the steps before plummeting down was music to my ears. Rosie jumped up and ran to her father, fear in her eyes. Lulu, you shouldn't have done that. I would have been okay. Dad would never have hurt me. Dear Rosie, with her soft voice and softer heart, as her father lay on the floor looking up at us with pain-glazed eyes, I saw the demon in him leave his body, cursing me for ruining his fun. Rosie was right about one thing. Her beloved daddy would never have touched his daughter in anger. The thing that just left had no such qualms. My Sarah had never stood a chance against the same evil. I think Sarah would be proud, Lulu. You always told me what a brave girl she was. She would have forgiven you for being scared. Even angels have fear sometimes. As she said those words, my vision dimmed. 
Only Rosie saw my shock at the light enveloping me. My personal demons were destroyed when I saved her. As forgiveness flowed through me, the sacred flame burst within. The same flame that formed the wings now at my back. Effie Bongleton's Everlasting Halloween Parade by Ken Gacy. Effie Bongleton tasted the bittersweet tears of retirement as she waddled under the Pacific Westerling Zoo archway, past the empty otter enclosure, arriving at her faded pickup truck. After wrangling her keychain to enter, she tossed a box onto the passenger seat, muttering, Way too many sweets. Leaving work for the last time, Effie drove toward her mother's candy shop. As she turned in, the onset of diabetic coma lulled her into an uneasy stupor. Her blurry squint revealed the driveway, but she inadvertently swerved and plowed straight through the plate glass window. Loose candy burst out of the old display barrels as the storefront's clear shards scattered. Her head slammed against the windshield, spurting blood over the dash. Jagging pain rested her dying brain as she hunkered motionless over the cracked steering wheel. She never saw the stockinged feet of her mother Dora splayed under the twisted chassis. The ethereal boom of Dora Dweezil's daughter's demise swept over her mangled body, her transition into the Halloween afterlife complete. Effie Rose mired in confused regret. Her focus cleared gradually to reveal a pair of eight-footish tall, bluish-purple otters who greeted her at the intersection of Infinity Way. Effie merely swooned. Her grimace betrayed an unnatural loathing, though the furry lad seemed familiar. The otters bade welcome and explained her mother's hospitalization rescue and immediately attempted to recruit Effie into the Halloween parade. Mrs. Bongleton, we are in quite a bind. The parade organizer needs replacing, said Tink Goo the taller. Sit here, look to your left, and you will soon see why, said Pink Goo the shorter urgently. The parade announcer's voice boomed, welcome all to the everlasting Halloween parade. Chaos ensued as the marching reached the crossing point. Effie shuddered when devilish, fire-breathing, spewing molten rock above the cowering crowd collided with the monstrous majorettes, whose green goop exploded, covering an entire block of the figure-eight route. Flaming fallout scorched flailing marchers while spectators scattered. From the hospital's solarium above, Dora, too, witnessed the melee strapped into her seat. She cringed at the jeers and cheers thrown up from street level. A diesel must lead the parade to secure Dora's release, the otters explained. Dazed and guilt-ridden, Effie agreed. With a burst of resolve, Effie blew a loud whistle. All motion stopped. Effie called for a route cleanup and strategy meeting. Effie's tag-team tactic worked. Finally, all who could watch the orderly Halloween parade, the monkeys jockeying at cotton candy lamb herd, then purple hippopedes clomping by, and rainbow-jacketed groundhogs littering glitter. The otters and crowd roared with approval. Finally, the last act glided through the bottlenecked intersection unscathed, and Effie noted a surly candy striper wheeling her mother. Hi, Mom, she said with immense relief. Hello, daughter. Thanks for getting me out. I forgive you, Dora said with pause. Forgive me for what, Mom? Effie uttered. For running me over with your pickup truck. Oh my gosh, I did that, Effie said with disbelief. Yes, darling. We're both here now. Did you bring any sweets? Ghostly Tours 
by Clarissa Gosling. There's one in every group, the Northall, who thinks they cannot fact me. But there's a reason I run the best ghost tour in Edinburgh. I have lived in this city all my life and grew up on stories of its hauntings and poltergeists. All Hallows Eve was always the busiest day of the year, so the group was full as we made our way around the city. Bloody Mackenzie's tomb in the Black Mausoleum, the Headless Woman in Gillespie Crescent, Body Snatchers under the South Bridge vaults, and ghostly monks in Rosalind Chapel. The crowd shrunk together the more places we visited. Even the costume lads on their stag party had torn down their bravado, and the mother and daughter stood clutching hands, eyes whirling at each sound. But the one man with his trilby and too large overcoat continued with his questions, wanting every detail about the ghosts and their stories. At every place I had to cut him off so we could keep to our schedule. We ended the tour at Edinburgh Castle with the story of the Grey Lady. How Lady Janet Douglas had been burned at the stake there on the esplanade of the castle, falsely accused of witchcraft and attempting to poison the king. As I told her story, a single bagpipe played somewhere nearby. The man with the trilby smiled and removed his hat to show his bald head with a wisp of hair around the edges. Then he knelt with both hands on the ground. Come out, my son. You have wandered long enough. I am here to bring you home. His voice was low, and I shuddered at the power it contained. I blinked, and the apparition of a uniformed boy with a set of pipes around his shoulder rose from the ground. He was almost solid, just a hint of the buildings beyond visible through him. Father, the boy bowed his head, his eyes glistening. I was lost, but you found me. The man stood. In the name of our reason, Lord. He touched the boy's forehead, metal in each shoulder then took his hand and with a nod to me they both dissolved. The man's hat and overcoat fell to the floor where he had been standing. After a moment of silence, the lads laughed and pretended to disappear themselves. I wrapped the tour up and handed out the free drink vouchers for the Canongate toad bowl to end with. I was left with a hat and overcoat and too many questions. Had I just seen my first ghost? New me by Jessica Vitas. That was my last hit ever to celebrate the new place. After this, fresh start. Just have to believe in myself. If for no other reason than to prevent another accident. It's fuzzy, but I remember hearing a noise in the kitchen, like footsteps, then a foot slipping on a stair, and, and then... I think I heard a man's voice. But after that, nothing. Until I woke up to find the sun had disappeared. Since then, I've been stumbling around in a fog, chasing noises for what feels like days. The landlady did say she was sending a handyman to fix the sink. Would he have let himself in? I don't put it past myself to have left the door unlocked. But surely he would have made sure I was okay after hearing the crash. Either way, I feel much better now, like the fog's lifted. No blood, and my head doesn't even hurt. This is a good sign. New house, fresh start, just have to believe in myself. Like everyone else in town, I saw the news of the murder. Suicide that had occurred in the kitchen. Young couple, depressing. 
The house had sat empty for a couple months by the time I retired from my couch surfing career in the blaze of the one bridge I had left. I gave it a shot and my rental application was accepted. <laughs> it was probably the only one. The landlady seemed thrilled anyone wanted to see that house. I had just enough in savings to cover the deposit and the first month's rent. I guess she figured a currently unemployed tenant was better than none at all. She had disclosed that there had been two unfortunate deaths on the premises. As if most deaths were fortunate. <laughs> I don't believe in ghosts, and I wasn't in the position to turn down a place to live. But the noises, there they are again. Footsteps in the kitchen and a voice, female, 20s? I creeped closer to the kitchen doorway, straining to hear. Barely been a week, then a man's voice. What else to do? It's gotta be the landlady and the handyman. I, I mean, can ghosts even make noises? I reach the wall by the kitchen doorway. My voice admittedly shakes when I call out, uh, hello? Startled silence. I don't believe in ghosts. Yet, I plaster myself to the wall as the footsteps creak nearer. I lock eyes with the woman who peers around the doorway and reel backwards. She does the same. Her footsteps pound through the kitchen and the back door slams. The man's voice calls out after her. I think I'm the only one who hears the landlady's voice disclose that there has been three unfortunate deaths on the premises. Actually, this one was fortunate. Ghosts apparently can make noise because the laughter that bubbles up out of me rings throughout the house. I knew this was a fresh start. Just had to believe in myself. Cat and Mouse by Patricia Bouchard I trembled under the table, heart beating thrice as fast. Her dark form loomed overhead, all pretense of the kindly woman gone. Her fingers clutched at her shawl like claws. She growled. Where are ya, you little rat? sweet tang filled my nose. Good, so the bite was deep. These horrible teeth were useful for something. Her face dropped under the table and I choked back a terrified squeak as her sweeping robes and wild black hair swallowed any chance of escape. I ran, half fell, caught myself and jumped through an impossibly small gap in the sheets of fabric closing around me. Right, run with my feet and my hands, four legs instead of two. I bounded across the floor as the witch lunged for me. I looked up at the potions high above those shelves of cursed apothecaries the witch used to dupe me only minutes before. Rows of glowing jars perfectly ordered within a jungle of herbs, mushrooms, pestles, feathers, shells, and skulls glittering with semi-precious stones. I jumped caught a trailing vine and hung for a moment paralyzed, disoriented by gravity on a near vertical plane. The witch pounced and panic shot down my spine. My legs scurried up the vine, tail swinging for balance. Run! Danger! Hide! No, not hide! Though my whiskers buzzed and my fur stood on end, I forced my thoughts to stay focused on the rows of potions, love, transformation bewilderment, 
focus on what I could use to stop the witch and change myself back. She almost grabbed me as I sprung from the twisting plant onto the pot surrounding it. I darted from her swiping hands, dizzy with the ringing of terracotta crashing onto the stone floor, near blind with the rosemary and lavender that pressed all around me and assaulted my sensitive nose. Up, climb, my tiny claws grappled for impossible holds. Where my fingers fit, my body followed. The swiping of clawed hands and yowling of the witch drowned out all thought. Only fear and the need to run faster, climb higher, hide. No, I can't forget. I mustn't lose myself. Not yet. Warmth brushed against my whiskers, and I opened my watering eyes to the soft glow. Ambrosia and soothing oils helped dull the piercing scent of the herbs below. The potions I pushed my back against glass and all four paws against the wooden wall until I fell against the shelf and heard the crash of glass far below. She yowled like an animal and a black cat jumped out of a purple cloud and onto the shelves. I fought with every ounce of human willpower left in me against the animal fear that threatened to swallow my mind. I crashed more potions. With a poof, the witch was small as a cricket. She clung to a potion bottle and stared up at the rat, his eyes black, hungry, lost to her spell. He pounced. Partners by Amber Lynn Pryor On Halloween, when the veil thins, spirits try to cross into the living world. It's my job to keep them in the afterworld. At least, it used to be. My partner retired, and the new recruits were scared of me. I just didn't fit in anymore. I'd been in too many battles. My face was scarred, and no matter how often I bathed in the ethereal springs, I couldn't wash off the ichor that the dead bled out. I used to like my nickname, Eddie the Executioner, but now my reputation alienated me from the next generation of guards. Further damaging my pride, they didn't even want my help containing ghosts on Halloween. Instead, I was given a scent hound, and told to bring back a pass breaker. One of our new recruits earned a pass to visit her living family, but she hadn't returned. At least Roxy, the scent hound, didn't care what I looked like. We made good time and found Nicole, the missing recruit, just before midnight. She was pacing outside an abandoned warehouse. Her eyes widened as she noticed my scars, but she didn't move away. It's just the two of you? She said. Didn't you get my message? What message? My niece and her friends were kidnapped by ghosts. I tracked them here, but I can't get past the mystic barrier. Shifting my vision to detect ethereal energy, I spotted the barrier. Didn't they teach you barrier breaking at the academy? They said guards didn't need it. Fools. I touched the barrier. Hurry, they're going to sacrifice the children at midnight. I cursed. There was only one reason they'd picked the midnight on Halloween. They planned to use the sacrificial energy to rip a hole in the veil, allowing spirits to flood the world of the living. I created a hole in the barrier. We ran for the warehouse. Nicole pulled out an odd-looking gun and shot the ghosts guarding the doors. Impressive, I said, realizing the ghosts were alive but incapacitated. Nicole grinned. It's an energy destabilizer, my own design. I hadn't brought my energy sword, so I let Nicole take the lead. Her aim was spot on, 
and she only needed my help when a group of ghosts jumped us. I punched a few unconscious and Roxy cornered the rest. The kids were safe, and we didn't have to kill any of the ghosts, which would please the higher-ups. So, Eddie the Executioner isn't as bloodthirsty as they say. Nicole teased as I tied up our prisoners. I shrugged. I only killed when I had to. The next day I bumped into Nicole as she left the barracks. She was carrying a new gun. You made another one? Yeah, it's for my partner. My heart sank. I had decided to ask her if she'd be my partner, but of course, she'd already picked someone else. Nicole held the gun out to me. It's yours, if you want it, partner. Turn on the light by Erica Damon. I unplugged the lights and blew out the candles and the jack-o'-lanterns when no trick-or-treaters had knocked in the last half hour. It looked like Halloween was over for this year. My candy bowl was still half full, and I missed the days when hordes of kids roamed the streets and I had to scramble to find extra candies at the end of the night. This year it was barely 8 o'clock when the festivities ended, and I wasn't ready. I switched on a scary movie and turned out the rest of the lights. Sometime before the killer was caught, I must have fallen asleep. I wasn't even sure what woke me up, but the credits were playing and Netflix was asking what I wanted to watch next. Something felt off. Everything was still as the last of the soundtrack faded out. The house was dark and silent. Maybe one last costume kid had knocked? But the motion sensor light wasn't on outside. I, I tried to shake the feeling. I clicked off the TV and the darkness enveloped me. I didn't need a light to find my way, so I moved in blackness. I turned through the kitchen, and a thump stopped me. I spun. Shadowy shapes stood silent around me. My furniture turned menacing by adrenaline. A chair stood away from the dining table, I never left it like that. I waited. Another thump, closer this time. Two steps back, and I would be able to hit the light switch. Turn it all back to normal. I ran my hand along the wall, fingers faltering at the plastic edge of the switch plate. A voice froze me. I can't hear you. Turn on the light. What? My brain didn't understand, but that only freaked me out more. Goosebumps prickled my entire body. I didn't know what to do. Go away! I didn't care if it was rational or not. It was closer this time. I can't hear you. I spun, dropping my hand from the switch. I don't know why, but I didn't think the light was the answer. I lurched forward, away from the voice. Turn on the light! Directly behind me this time, I tripped forward and all the lights in the house went on. A mass of darkness condensed into a spindly man. He shook his head and blinked his glowing eyes. Better. His voice slithered. He reached out with a long finger, and I couldn't move. As it grazed me, a coldness ran through my body. My mind. I felt drugged. What do you want? His laugh surrounded me. I tried to fight. My body moved slowly and my vision became hazy. I tried, but no sound came out. I screamed. Silence. 
My throat burned with the effort. You're mine now. It echoed through my brain. I heard the light switch flick off, and there was only darkness. Be Fruitful and Multiply by Joyce Sully My whole yard constitutes an HOA violation these days. It's their fault. My whole yard is haunted, though. So I don't care anymore. That's why I decided to make the seed bombs. Rolled in dandelion fluff, they looked like coconut truffles. Sweet, harmless. HOA president Caitlin spent the years since I moved here glaring at the tree and me every time she walked princess. The black-barked tree, so gnarled and stooped, must have predated the cul-de-sac by centuries. Its roots churned up the regulation lawn. I fell in love with it before I even bought the house. I would have planted ten more, HOA code be damned, but I could never find a match in any book or nursery. It bloomed for the first time this year, streamers of white flowers cascading down to the sidewalk. I found a prim note taped to the door, informing me I was responsible for sidewalk cleaning since the tree was on my lot. There must have been at least one more out there within pollen range because the flowers set seed. Little black marbles I gathered by the dozen every time I came home. I got another prim note informing me a crew would remove the offending tree. Just because it was my responsibility didn't mean the tree was mine, apparently. I started seeing ghosts after they cut it down. The sawdust hadn't even blown away from the sidewalk yet. Caitlin probably still called the arborist daily to complain about inadequate cleanup procedures. I looked out one night to see the tree again, not black, but white. The flag across the street visible through its milky trunk. It brought friends when it came back. Every poisoned weed, failed rose bush, and spent petunia came to haunt yards up and down the block. I saw ghosts of houseplants, overwatered and limp, piled up around the neighbor's green waste bin. Like the tree had been holding them check, but now it couldn't or wouldn't keep the dead down. I could feel them too, dandelions nipped as I crossed the lawn. Phantom thorn vines drew blood when I took the trash out. No one noticed. No one could do anything about it. No one but me. I had the seeds, see. Dozens. They just needed soil, water, and someone with a strong throwing arm. They must have been tired of waiting in a bowl by my door because they grew fast once thrown. Neighbors woke to the cracking and rustling of growth. They could grow faster than, say, a person could run. Caitlin probably planned to tape a prim little bill for the tree removal on my door. It would have taken her some work. I can't see the door past the branches and vines these days, but they let me walk through when I ask. Caitlin doesn't live here anymore, though. No one but me. And I still don't know what kind of trees they are, but I have many more than one now. Halloween No-Show by Jim Crockett. The calendar said it was Halloween, but to Max in his kitchen, it was just another crisp autumn night. After drying his hands and stretching the dishcloth over a chair back, he took a sprinkled donut from the box on the counter and walked to his recliner in the living room. As a boy, Max had loved trick-or-treating. His gang of young friends began Halloween nights by laughing and strategizing, comparing notes on which house had been a bonanza the previous year. 
Then they ventured off into the night as fast as their makeshift costumes would allow, each on his own carefully planned route. At night's end, they met again, discussed that year's bonanzas, and planned next year's Halloween while gorging themselves on their hard-earned candy. But now Halloween was just another full night. His small house at the end of a very long gravel driveway had never been visited by trick-or-treaters. When he first moved in 12 years ago, Max had planned to be a bonanza house no child would want to miss. He filled his basket with huge candy bars, switched on the porch light, and ate popcorn in his recliner, chuckling to himself, waiting for his doorbell to ring. But it never rang. Was it because of the lighting, he wondered? Could they even see his house from the main road? Next Halloween, he bought even better candy, opened his curtains, and turned on every light in his house. His big chandelier blazed an invitation through the living room window. No one came. In his last house, Max had once had so many visitors that he'd exhausted his candy supply and been forced to hand out cough drops, ice cubes, and Flintstone vitamins. He worried all night. Homeowners that skimped or gave out worse treats than the previous year might awaken to find their lawn filled with a million toothpicks, their house plastered with eggs, or their trees rolled with toilet paper. Now, he thought he might enjoy such treatment. Even being a disappointment would be better than being ignored. After eight years with no visitors, he gave up, and for several years now Halloween was just another night in his recliner. Tonight, he was reading a novel when his doorbell rang. He brushed crumbs from his shirt, set down his book, extracted himself from the chair, and opened the door. A small boy with a mask and a bumpy white plastic bag said, Trick or treat! Wait, said Max. He stepped into his kitchen and returned with three donuts in a paper bag and a can of Mountain Dew. Sorry I didn't have anything ready, but have a happy Halloween. As the boy walked away, Max heard an excited whisper. Bonanza! Max went to bed smiling, quietly laughing to himself. He was happier than he'd been in years. The next year, he spent Halloween with friends, and returned late at night to find his house and porch splattered with dozens of eggs. My Sister's Keeper by Elijah Smearfit in my memory, he hunches at the table, a large hand lifting food to his mouth. My nephew sits silent behind him at a plastic table against the wall, his slight frame buzzing with bee hum and his bird's eye starting. Fine boned hands grab food and before he can place it in his mouth, he's out of his chair, butt in the air, mouth open to say something. My sister tenses. My brother-in-law turns, roars, Sit down! He's up from the table, food uneaten, plate thrown in the sink, dark eyes on my sister, and mouth open to criticize. It's his hands in my mind. Hands wrapped around the telephone cord, yanking it from the wall. You won't leave. A towel rack ripped from the bathroom in anger, footsteps heavy down the hall, breathing from his mouth and my nephew curled on the carpet. All that beautiful energy bald, centered around survival, while my sister stands between them. 
I only know because she tells me. His hands in the dark as she shoves him, fights, the rotten scent of his sweat mixed with cologne and the feel of his teeth hard enough to cut, to bleed. It's not supposed to hurt, I want to whisper. A month after they start dating and she wants out, wants to leave before children, before marriage, before intimacy, but he revs the engine in the dark. I can't live without you. They're parked on a cliff. I see him in the future, slam his son against the wall, break his body. He loads the shotgun from the farm shed. He makes her stay. Forever. I imagine my fingers slide, slick against the handle of my chef's knife. Outside, it's Halloween and a firecracker pops like a gun, makes me jump. She's something, eh? He smiles, those dark eyes on mine, looking for purchase, for agreement. She makes a good bride of Frankenstein. The knife feels great as I shove it, hard, swift into the soft exposure of his throat. The pulse of warm blood makes me gasp, slicks my hand and wets me. Feels good for a fantasy. The morning after, used fireworks on the street, there's a knock on the door. Bang, bang, bang. Men in suits ask me questions through a fog. Do you know where she is, your sister? My damp hand curls around the cool doorknob. Do I know where she is right now? Yes. They can't find her. My nephew's things are missing. I am suffocating. No. My brother-in-law's body was found in a parking lot outside their apartment, bludgeoned to death. In a small room with a bright bulb, they asked me through the light, do you know where your sister was between midnight and two in the morning? My hand curls around a paper cup of lukewarm coffee. Last night, between midnight and two in the morning? Yes. I am my sister's keeper. She was with me. Marin by Jillian Carter Mabel continued her tirade. If you think I can put up with your mess, you got another thing coming. Look at that pile of papers. Socks in the kitchen, too. And when did you last wash dishes? The minute I turned my back, this house is a disgrace. Anyone would think you were living a bachelor's life. Well, I'm here now, and I certainly won't be leaving you alone again. Jack looked at Mabel in dismay. He'd watched her skinny bag of bones sink into the dam, a trail of bubbles marking her descent as the last of the oxygen left her body. Yet here she was, back to haunt him. Shush, woman! He cried. I can't think for your noise! The door slammed behind him, cutting off her voice. Jack stormed off to the dam as fast as his arthritic knees would let him. Puffing from anger and effort, he sat on the smooth boulder beside the dark, still water. Forty-seven years of Mabel's nagging had driven him to its side. Here, Jack found his peace. A slight breeze ruffled the dam's surface before it settled to stillness again. The water's darkness hinted at its depth. Aye, this dam could hold a secret or two. As it was, it held Marin. Marin, busy scurrying and feeding, were hidden among the fallen trees and submerged leaves. 
Jack had been farming there and for decades. He knew their habits as well as he knew his own. Freshwater carrion, they ate everything living, dead, and decaying. Darkness had fallen when Jack returned. Mabel was nowhere to be seen, but he could feel her presence. It was as if she was watching him, even when she wasn't in the room. He could feel her eyes boring into his back. Jack shook his head to clear the thought. Don't be daft, you old fool. He scoffed. She's not here. But she was. When he opened the door to the bedroom, Mabel was sitting in the rocking chair in the corner waiting for him. Its creak unnerved him. He didn't know how she did that. Made it rock when she looked so still. Mabel stood up when he entered the room. She moved in front of him and bared her teeth in a semblance of a smile. Till death do us part, Jack, she snarled. Did you really think I'd leave you, even after what you did? I will never, ever leave you. Never. Jack turned on his heel and ran from the house. Mabel followed, her skirt billowing as she floated over the ground. He stumbled, picked himself up, and stumbled again. At last, he reached the dam. He turned and looked at her shape, ghostly in the moonlight, before walking into the water deeper and deeper, until he was almost submerged. Disembodied words echoed across the dam. Till death do us part, woman. Till death do us part. Pork by Kate Doe. She stared at the knife in her hand, at her lover on the floor. The body stared back, not yet knowing it was dead. Then, with a roll of its eyes back into its head, it acknowledged that it was indeed defunct, and she was left with a dilemma about what to do with it. Previously, she had turned boring lovers into pork chops. Her husband would be home at around 7 tonight, which left her about 12 hours to figure out how to get rid of the body and to do so. City investment bankers were not known for keeping their cool around dead bodies, dull wives with knives in their hands, or bloodstains all over the kitchen. She cast around the room. Before she had married, she had studied at art school, and trips around the room for inspiration had been a regular part of her life. She pulled a calendar from the wall, tossed it into the kitchen island. From a pile of trash left on a stool by her daughter, she fished out a copy of Bride magazine, skipped the dresses, and turned to this section on alternative receptions. Kaylee? Barn dance? Wait. She danced into the other room, fished out her phone from between two sofa cushions, and worked her way down to her contact list, began making calls. Oh, hi, this is Annie Fisher. I wonder if you might like to join us for dinner this evening. We're having a barbecue for Halloween, a chance for the neighbors to try out our new pool. In half an hour, the whole police department of Smalltown and most of the neighbors had agreed to come. Annie made one last call to a friend who worked in a college medical school. Want a cadaver? She asked. Fresh? When a friend asked where this cadaver had come from, Annie cut him off. How about you don't ask that question and I don't ask how my 18-year-old came home for Halloween pregnant and threatening to marry you? That shut him up. Arrangements were made and in the few hours before the barbecue was due to start, the friend jumped into his car, drove to small town, and collected the cadaver for scientific research. 
The body's clothes, personal effects, and everything Annie had used in the cleanup could be incinerated as medical waste back on campus. Annie dialed out for groceries and spooky decorations, paid extra for same-day delivery, and started preparing awful salads and sauce. Before the grocery truck had arrived, she'd lit the fire pit. By the time her guest arrived, whole pigs were spit-roasting over the coals. Tables groaned under the weight of grilled lambs, intestines, brains, salads, and chili sauce. A plainclothes detective slipped samples of the pork into his pocket for testing. He had eaten chops at her last dinner party. But when she saw this, she smiled at him brightly. Pork, she said. If he tested the barbecue meat for human flesh, she'd come up smelling of roses. Ghost Eye Dog by E.J. Tedrow When she who feeds me brought the dark-eyed puppy home, I did not care for him. Buried in a blanket with its two-legged pups, she who laughs and he who pulls fur cooing over him, he looked as soft as the baby fuzz he had for fur. He who leads sighed and gave me a heavy pat, the sort I love. You'll have to teach him, Nava. Shoni must learn how to protect us this autumn. If he who leads had said this two summers ago, I would have growled and flattened my ears. But I had not hurt so much then. When I was young like Shoni, I was dark and sharp and quick, guarding my family from the ghosts that come every autumn. Not anymore. I would teach the dark-eyed pup. The air turned crisp and cool. The worst time for ghosts is the night the two-legged pups wear strange faces and eat treats. And the new pup was still unseeing. So with aching bones and with Shoni by my side, I circled the den. He bounded off to chase bugs and birds until a warning growl brought him back to me. Don't understand, he whined. You must see. Look. He sulked, saw nothing. Ghosts are invisible, except to ones who see, like me. They steal life, screaming and clawing, and the two legs have no defense except for us. I thought of he who leads and my sore legs. I must make Shoni see. There was a ghost in the front of the yard by the old tree. It hovered, waiting for its chance. Then one became two. The first dove at the two-legged pup, wearing a long-nosed face. The other at Shoni. I was only quick enough to save one of them. The dark-eyed pup yelped as the ghost sank cold claws beneath his fur, while I snapped at the one who dared come near a two-leg in my territory. The ghost screeched and slapped at me, but I have fought ghosts before, one bite, two, and I found the line that tethered the ghost to this world and broke it. Shoni was still crying, entangled with his ghost, thrashing around, bite, I commanded. My legs hurt, my heart thundered in my ribs, but I pounced on the ghost even as Shoni snapped his teeth. With a final wail, the ghost faded and Shoni lay panting on the dark grass. The pup shuddered and opened eyes that were now pale and bright like mine. So, he would see after all. But seeing eyes need time to become clear. His would be blurry now. I tried to get to my feet, but my legs would not hold me. Shoni watched, concerned, then glanced at the flickering ghost circling near us. You cannot run. I see only a little. How do we fight them? I grinned. Bite where I say, I will be the eyes. Now we could fight as a team. You will be the teeth. What you can't see can kill you. 
by Bill Bush. Halloween. After midnight. I'd frightened away the greedy children I dreaded each year. Alone. Finally. For ambiance, I read my Alfred Hitchcock macabre using a small flashlight with the window open in my upstairs library. I pulled the afghan over my shivering, naked body. I couldn't put the book down until I heard voices. I quickly clicked off the flashlight, leaving me in complete darkness. Three boys, not yet teenagers, judging from their high-pitched voices. Here to snoop around the old haunted house, no doubt. Being that young, they wouldn't stick around long before pissing their pants and running home to mommy. I returned to my seat to wait them out. After the crashing of my downstairs window, I leapt from my chair. By the time I arrived, two of the three stood inside my living room. One wore a cap with a wildcat on front, the other a tank top that revealed goosebumps up and down his arms. I determined to watch him flee in tears. I guess the third chickened out. Tank top tried to record, but I slapped the phone then crushed it underfoot as the pair screamed and ran. Two beams of light searched the room as the boys hugged each other like their life depended on it. Tanktop pointed his flashlight at the debris that had been his phone. Did you see that? Wildcat managed between breaths. I heard someone whisper, who are you? No. All I said was, boo. I slammed the broken window shut and locked it. They sprinted up the stairway that sat behind them. Not their smartest move. I slowly crept upstairs, making sure to hit every creaky step. They ran into my library and slammed the door. Stupid kids. I slowly turned the knob so that they would get the full horror movie effect. Pushing open the door, I slid inside while their beams fixed on the empty doorway. Hitchcock lay on the floor beside Wildcat, my bookmark a foot away. Those worthless punks. I replaced the bookmark and set the book on my chair. It, 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 it's a ghost! I'm flesh and blood, but better they believe I'm a ghost than to know the truth. The boys back toward the wall, flailing their flashlights wildly around the room, looking for what they could not see. Me. A beam of light hit my eyes. I blindly grabbed a book from the shelf and hurled it at their direction. My eyes readjusted to the darkness in time to see wildcats stumble backwards and disappear through the window. No! Tanktop and I screamed at the same time. The kid shined his light my direction. His lip quivered, his chest heaved, and he wept while his body worked up the courage to move. Then he screamed and fled the room, sobbing. I bet his crotch was wet, too. I leaned out the window. Wildcat's body lay motionless on my patio below. Just wonderful. Now the authorities would come snooping around. Good thing I'm invisible. The Last Dance by Eliza K. Gillum Ever since the Halloween Masquerade Ballet began in 2015, it had been marred by the prima ballerina collapsing at the end of the first act. Each year a different troupe performed, but this year the dancers refused to perform until the manager fixed the problem. The theater manager called me hours before the dance, requesting help. The miasma of the past wrapped around me like a cold blanket the minute I stepped into the 100-year-old theater. 
Ghosts of former staff assisted with props and decorations. I headed for the stage where the dancers rehearsed. They moved fluidly across the stage, but the flow seemed awkward as they avoided a spot near the prima ballerina, as if they could sense someone there. When I focused on the spot, the sheer form of a female dancer appeared. She stood out in her old-fashioned tutu and hairstyle. The ghost matched the prima's steps perfectly. Once close enough, the ghost touched the dancer and slipped into her body. The ballerina's steps faltered for a moment before she recovered. Then her delicate steps became more graceful, energetic. Once the ghost took over, the dancers resumed the original choreography. Now came the hard part, removing the ghost without hurting the dancer. Short on time, I drew a symbol on a piece of paper a simple ward. It created a barrier between the ghost and the human, separating them without force. I waited until the dancers stopped for a break, paper in my hand, and introduced myself to the prima. She seemed out of it, a far-off expression in her glassy eyes. Iris, she said, and shook my hand. The symbol flashed as the palm of her hand touched the paper. The ballerina's eyes widened and focused on me. What happened? I is it break time already? The prima let go of my hand and looked around in confusion. You spaced out, Peyton, just like yesterday, another dancer said as he guided her backstage. The ghost hovered in the same space, shocked at finding herself alone. I grabbed the ghost's wrist, holding her in place. What are you doing, Iris? She glanced from my hand, holding her wrist to a spot near the curtains backstage. Dancing. I need to finish my last dance. I never finished. The crowd is waiting. I followed her gaze and saw Iris strangled by another dancer right before the curtain rose for the second act. Iris moved towards the edge of the stage and peered out into empty seats. She looked around the stage, saw the black and orange decorations, and a table of masks in the corner. Where's the crowd? Not here yet, I said. She sank to the stage, arms wrapped around her wispy form. Will you leave if you finish tonight's dance, I asked. Yes. I drew a different symbol on her forehead, making her visible to human eyes. Come, let's get you in costume. Dead Man's Gulch by Michael F. Swan Mackenzie spent the better part of a year tracking Ralph Johnson, only to find that the killer had returned to the scene of the crime. The ravine once contained a rutted path that led westward to freshwater, until Johnson dynamited one end, killing 16 settlers. The avalanche buried 13, and Johnson shot the rest. He took a quick look at the wrinkled poster in the light of a full moon. Beneath the rough sketch of a hard-bitten face, it read, Wanted dead or alive. Ralph Johnson. Reward, $5,000. Mentally crossing out the alive part, he tucked the sheet away. His pocket watch read 11.55. In five minutes, it would be Halloween. Before she died, his nana told him that the veil between worlds was thin on All Hallows' Eve, and that those who died violently could walk again. He hesitated briefly, but decided to press on. He couldn't let Johnson elude him again. Mackenzie hobbled both horses and proceeded into the ravine on foot. 
Moonlight provided enough illumination to see the three hastily constructed cairns housing the avalanche survivors. He'd carefully navigated around them when he felt something grasping at his shoulder. Whirling toward the touch, he drew his weapon while tripping over a rock. As he fell, he fired his cold revolver wildly, missing the skeleton rising out of the cairn. As two other skeletons rose, he jumped to his feet and scrambled from the dead and further into the ravine. He dove behind a rock. Glancing to his right, he spotted the three skeletons shambling toward him. Wondering whether the dead could be killed again, he took aim and fired at the middle skeleton. His round shattered the ribcage, but didn't slow the creature. He aimed again, then realized that they had stopped. He paused. As the ringing in his ears subsided, he heard chanting. He stood up, looked over the boulder, and saw the three skeletons pointing to his left. He turned and saw Johnson standing atop a cliff, holding a metallic staff. A sickly blue glow emanated from the staff, revealing a dozen or so skeletons with the murderer. As the illuminated area expanded from the staff, the mass of dead moved toward him while remaining within the light. He moved his Henry rifle from his back, positioned it on the boulder, and aimed. Between the distance and the dimness, he wasn't sure that he could make the shot. Though not a religious man, Mackenzie said a prayer before firing. The bullet shattered the staff and the blue light went out. The skeletons turned around and converged on Johnson. He worked his way up the cliff as the skeletons parted to let him pass, revealing Johnson shivering in a fetal position. As he manacled the murderer, the skeletons melted into the rockfall. A gibbering Johnson followed him meekly to the horses, and as the pair rode back to town, Mackenzie mentally crossed out dead from the poster. Tricks for Treats by Missy Lyman Jess clutched at the drink as she scanned the werewolf's only Halloween party. She'd spent a fortune on her fursuit and all afternoon on her makeup. The bouncers hadn't looked twice at her. She searched the crowded warehouse venue for Michael. Michael, the hottest werewolf she'd ever seen, stole her heart that spring. He'd bumped into her in the park, fixed his amber eyes on hers, then chugged away with the other werewolves. She'd asked him out several times after that, but he only mingled with other werewolves. Other men, even werewolves willing to date humans, did not compare. Her mind kept going back to his touch, his eyes, oh God, his eyes. She knew if he saw past her humanness, he would love her. What harm was a little trick to let him get into her world of treats? She spotted him on a raised dance floor. His fangs gleamed. She blushed at seeing him in his wolf form, a treat reserved for fellow werewolves. A female werewolf approached him. Jess hurried. No way would she let someone a bitch ruin her chance. She weaved through the crowds and climbed the metal stairs. He left the platform by another set of stairs on his way to the bar. Jess followed. Hi. She caught up to him and touched his arm. Electricity shot through her body. Hi, do I know you? When he looked at her with those eyes, she melted. This was it. 
he saw her as a werewolf. Now she just had to keep up the facade long enough for him to fall in love. The DJ interrupted with an announcement. Everyone moved toward the center of the room. Jess stayed close to Michael. They stood side by side in the crowd. Michael's earthy scent had drowned out the DJ's words. She feasted her eyes on his fur, his broadened shoulders. She drank in his wild nature. The werewolves stamped their feet in unison and howled at the moon which shone in slivers through the dilapidated roof. Jess hadn't practiced howling. Human imitations of wolf noises irritate most tolerant in the werewolf community. She stamped her feet. If she tried to howl, the mask would crack. Michael eyed her. Silence would give her away too. She looked up and gave her best. Oh! Michael stopped his melodic cry and stared at her. Frozen, she stared back. He grinned, showing more of his delicious fangs. A sheep in our midst, he said, licking his lips. Michael took Jess in his arms. She thrilled. She looked up at his face, his eyes full of desire. He threw his chest heavenward and let out a yowl Jess felt in her bones. The ruckus halted and all eyes turned to them. Michael's hot breath licked her neck as he said, Is it wrong to trick someone into loving you? Jess's wig fell to the floor. He sunk his teeth into the sweet, lovesick flesh of his Halloween treat. Deadline by Timothy Hicks The telephone rang. Brandon moaned, not another bill collector. But it could be Dad. Brandon Bremer This is Mr. Reaper. Our firm's internal publication requires a short story. The deadline is 4 p.m. tomorrow. Our regular author passed away, suddenly. We are willing to pay additional for such short notice. Would $10,000 suffice? Would it? Yes, I believe I have an opening. Excellent. Thank you, Mr. Bremer. My courier will bring your paperwork. I look forward to receiving your completed manuscript in person. Brandon hung up the phone and whooped. What luck! Enough to pay bills and fly out to Dad. It'd been too long. Well, that would change. After the courier arrived, Brandon glanced over the papers and signed a non-disclosure agreement, followed by a contract. He returned the documents, thanked the courier, and closed the door. He rested his head against the doorpost. Whew. Time to write. Brandon logged onto his laptop and opened Word. 5,000 words by 4 p.m. 200 words an hour working all night. He could do it. The phone rang. Mom sounded tired, worried. Brandon, I wish you were here. Your father is worse. Not sure how much longer. She sobbed. I'll be home soon. I have a job. I'll buy a ticket. I'll be there. Promise. Brandon hung up and rushed to his laptop. He had to get home. Words trickled onto the screen. The contract and the penalties kept coming to mind. 
He dug out the contract, reread it. Reaper said the previous author expired suddenly. There, near the end, termination of services due to completion failure, as signed and dated by Mr. T.G. Reaper. Brandon felt for the couch and dropped onto it. Would he see Dad again if he failed to complete? He rose and darted to his computer. Eight hours. He had eight hours. Outside, the sun set and rose. Brandon kept typing. Three hours, seven minutes by his watch. He typed faster. The phone rang. He typed. Outside, a shot rang out, then a scream. He bent lower over the keyboard. His clock beeped. A knock sounded at his door. Brandon finished, saved, and clicked print. He hurried to open the door for a well-dressed man. Mr. Bremer. Yes? A gloved hand extended an envelope. Brandon nodded and turned to grab the now-finished printout. Your story, Mr. Reaper. By the way, what does TG stand for? Brandon swallowed, slow. Thaddeus Gregory. My grandfather's name. Why do you ask? Brandon breathed out. I was afraid you were the Grim Reaper. Thaddeus chuckled. Thank you, but that's my father. Brandon felt his knees grow wobbly. Well, I will see you in 365 nights, Thaddeus said. What? Brandon shook his head. In your contract, I will contact you each year to write for us. Or as long as you meet your deadline. Meet my deadline each year? Of course. This is an annual contract. Have a good evening, Mr. Bremer. See you next October 31st. Thank <laughs> you.